All right, let's get started. Part three of our science series. Last week, we left off with a fairly weighty discussion about analyzing the assumptions and analyzing the claims that are made in the debate that's going on among Christians. Okay, our first talk focused on the secularization of America and how Christians could never come up with an answer, so we lost our time on the stage. We lost the presumption. We're kind of out of the picture. But last week, we kind of took a little bit of a look that even if someone was going to give us a chance to comment on science and religion, that Christians were divided into two camps and they seemed to be bitterly opposed to one another, at least intellectually speaking, maybe not in their conduct. But there almost seemed to be no way to reconcile it. So last week, we took the exercise of, before we dive into the debate, stepping back and learning how to build a framework for the debate. And if you remember last week, we talked about what does it mean to build a framework to analyze science in the Bible, that if you don't have a framework, if you don't have a frame of reference, if you don't have a starting place, all you're going to do is argue. To summarize some of the frameworks we identified, the young earth creationists last week seemed to start with the idea that scripture has already been interpreted, it's been interpreted correctly, and that any scientific discovery that's made that conflicts with scripture should be thrown out or is foolish or violates the integrity of the Bible. The old earth creationists seem to come from a different angle. They are coming more from the angle that God wrote scripture, God created the universe, God does not contradict himself. If we see things in science as we discover more about God's nature that seem to contradict our understanding of the Bible, maybe we need to analyze the interpretation we've adopted because in many cases, there is an interpretation issue, and we've chosen one, we may have chosen the wrong one. Remember, all biblical interpretation requires that you put it in context, since so many words mean multiple things unless you put them in the right context. It's kind of a summary. Tonight, what I want you to do as we watch this DVD, it's broken down into segments. It's a debate between a young earth creationist and an old earth creationist. Let me tell you at the outset, both are Christians, both are respected scholars, and both believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. The question we're going to focus on is exactly what we focused on last week. What exactly do they both mean when they talk about those words? Here's some things I want you to put in your mind, because I'm going to stop the DVD as we get to each segment, and then I'm going to ask you some questions. I want you to respond. By the way, this DVD is 160 minutes long. Right? We, are not, we are not going to see it all tonight. In fact, I don't know if we're going to make it through a third of it tonight. We may spend two or three weeks analyzing this video. But the reason that I think this video is so important, having spent those weeks understanding what a 10-word answer is, and having spent those weeks understanding the biblical framework for analyzing scientific issues, is because these two people do a great job of presenting the debate for you. The good news for me is tonight, as a speaker, I no longer have to be so unbiased. Tonight, the gloves come off a little bit because I want to rip apart a little bit of what you see in front of you. I don't have to fairly represent either side. I'll let them do that for you. And then I want us, not just me, you also, to help me rip apart what's going on because if you listened to what we were talking about last week and you understood all those things we talked about, about analyzing assumptions and looking behind the claims, you should be able to do a very good job this week of seeing what's going on on the screen in front of you. We can take sides if you want to. You can pick apart arguments. You can critique what's going on. That's what I want you to be thinking about. Here's some things to help you do that. 
I want you to evaluate each person's claims and what they're saying. I want you to evaluate the assumptions that they're using to make those claims. I want you to evaluate the data they use to support their arguments. Listen carefully. Pretend this is a presidential debate. Pretend you're trying to figure out who you're going to vote for tonight. Listen carefully to what they're saying. I want you to evaluate who is making the claims. I want you to evaluate their credentials for even making some of the claims here tonight. I want you to look at carefully at the logic and see if it holds through. I also want you to analyze the individual participants themselves. Are they answering the question? Are they dealing with one another on a fair ground? Do they have at their fingertips the information they need? Are they credible in their responses? Okay. Those are the kind of things that I want to analyze tonight as you watch this. I hope that what you see is two people that are both Christians, that take different views, and then we start to kind of figure out where you guys fall once you see people per, you know, present it for you tonight. So without saying much more, let's get started and watch the first segment. Today on the John Ankerberg Show, we invite you to listen to a debate on science and the Bible. Our topic, are the universe and the earth billions of years old or just thousands of years old? Does the information in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 agree with contemporary scientific evidence? My guests are astronomer Dr. Hugh Ross and educator Dr. Kent Hoven. We invite you to join us for this special debate on The John Ankerberg Show. We're talking tonight with two special guests about the topic as the universe and the earth. Are they billions of years old or just thousands of years old? And are Genesis 1 and 2 compatible with contemporary scientific evidence today? My guests are Dr. Hugh Ross, who received his PhD in astronomy from the University of Toronto. He did his po uh, postdoctoral research on quasars at Caltech. Also, Dr. Kent Hoven, who received his PhD in education, writing his doctoral dissertation on the subject of creation and evolution. Guys, we're glad that you're here tonight. And we're going to start right off with an important question. And Dr. Ross, I'd like to start with you. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, you believe the scientific evidence for the Big Bang proves that this statement is true. But you also believe that the Big Bang theory shows that the age of the universe and the earth is billions of years old. And the scientific evidence astronomers have discovered about the Big Bang, it perfectly fits the biblical creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. Why? Talk to us. Sure. Well, I'd like to give credit where it's due. I mean, a lot of people think Albert Einstein and George Gamow were the ones that discovered the Big Bang. But in truth, they were upstaged by 2,000 years by Moses and David and Zechariah, uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Because uh, what you see is eight times the Bible states that the universe was transcendently created, a transcendent beginning of matter, energy, space, and time, which is identical to the Big Bang concept of a singular beginning. And likewise, in 11 different places in the Bible, it tells us that the universe is continually experiencing ongoing uh, expansion, you know, the stretching out of the heavens. Uh, it's in the Cal Act of participle form, uh, this continual stretching out. And the third point is that uh, you have in Romans chapter 8 uh, that the entire creation is subject to the law of decay. And that implies that the universe was much hotter in the past than it is now. Otherwise, you're not going to get this progress towards decay. 
And those are the three fundamental principles of the Big Bang Theory. And so the question is not whether or not it's a Big Bang, but really I think what divides us is uh, how long has the universe been expanding? And uh, I can suggest uh, seven easy tests. There are a dozen more that are more complicated. But I think the two that are the most compelling is that stars and planets are impossible unless the universe has been expanding for billions of years. If it's only thousands, all you get is hydrogen gas. If it's trillions, all you get are black holes. And moreover, you can only get stable orbits of planets uh, about stars and stars about the centers of galaxies if the universe has been expanding continually okay. uh, for billions of years. Before Ken answers here, the fact is, where is the scientific community? Do they, do, are they admitting that the universe had a start? Yes. Give me an example. Uh, well, you've got Stephen Hawking, for example, who produced the space-time theorem of general relativity. Uh, and that uh, theorem is based on only two conditions. If the universe contains mass, and a bathroom scale is usually enough to convince most skeptics, and number two, if the dynamics of the universe is governed by the equations of general relativity, then there must exist a cause that brings the universe into existence independent of matter, energy, and 10 space-time dimensions. Okay, so it so, had a start. Are they uh, a little troubled by that problem? Uh, very much. I mean, one of my books I wrote about how for 60 years, astronomers did everything they could to get around the implications of general relativity, but observational evidence forced them to accept that this is really true. In fact, general relativity now ranks as the best proven principle in all of physics. All right, so to sum up, the fact is matter, energy, and all the rest has not been here eternally, which is what science is now saying and admitting. If you had a start, you had to have a starter. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is coming on very strong in the scientific community. Yeah, and it's not a Hindu starter, it's a Christian starter. I mean, what's unique about Christianity, it alone speaks about God creating independent of matter, energy, space, and time. Even time is created. All right. Kent, uh, you also believe the biblical statement that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but you differ in believing when God did it. You think that he did it 6,000 years ago. What scientific evidence proves the universe is young and the Big Bang Theory is not true in terms of time? Um, I would have to say if, the, if what you're proposing is true, then there is no possible way the average person in the world can read this book and understand it. Um, the God that I worship wrote a book that anybody can read and understand the vast majority of it. And this book clearly says God made everything in six days. They were days just like we have today. I think the Big Bang Theory is one of the most ridiculous ideas I've ever heard of in the world. And I think we'll have an interesting discussion on that tonight. Okay, tell us why. Well, Big Bang Theory does not explain the origin of time, space, or matter. What exploded? Where did it come from? Where did the energy come from? Why are some of the planets spinning backwards to others? You know, if a spinning object breaks apart in a frictionless environment, everything spins the same way. And yet we have Venus, Uranus, and possibly Pluto spinning backwards, and at least six moons spinning backwards. And he mentioned the everything is tending toward decay, and yet what he said about the Big Bang is exactly the opposite of that. Right, here, Where did all this stuff come from? Here, what do you come back with? Well, I mean, we're talking about decay since the transcendent beginning. I mean, well, where why did the, would God need to use a Big Bang? Why not just make it right? Well, that's what he says he did. He says he created matter, energy, space, and time. That's exactly what the Big Bang is saying. It's identical. There's no difference between no. Genesis 1-1. There's no difference between what you're saying and what Carl Sagan says. 
That's what I see. I see what you say as being totally foreign to God's Word, and I get real nervous when, I, when somebody oh, teaches it. something. Well, when somebody teaches something where we have to have a guru to explain it, now you have a cult. We don't need this, a guru. Anybody can read this book and understand it. As I said, you've got six different Bible authors speaking about the heavens being continually stretched out. No, no. There are six different times where it says God stretched out the heavens. It yes. doesn't prove the Big Bang. Well, a Big Bang says that a transcendent being is the one that's responsible sure. for that. I agree there is stretching of the heavens, but yes. I don't think that proves it's billions of years old. See, that's where you went from the observation to the interpretation of the observation, and that's hey, where you get to trouble. Do you agree that the universe contains planets and stars? We know that we have at least nine planets around our sun, and yes, there are plenty of stars out there, trillions and trillions of them. I agree well, there are planets and there are stars, and it's been expanding for billions of years. Well, I guess we don't know that it's been expanding. We do see a red shift with some, from some of the stars, and uh, some interpret that to mean expanding. Some interpret that to mean tired light. Uh, the me, Bible me, says clearly Let me slow God's this down for our people out, out in the audience sure. there, and that is uh, basically what you're saying is that, okay, if we do have planets and we do have uh, stars out there, that, uh, Hugh, I think what you're saying is that uh, in, in astronomy, that there's a way of measuring how far away those guys are. Okay? That's true. All right, and I hear uh, Kent saying, no, let's start. How do you know how far away they are? And then let's have Kent come back on that. In other words, what are the tip-offs? Well, I, let me underline the under, uh, principal point, though. The very existence of stars and planets means it's been expanding for billions of years. To support thousands of years, you've got to get rid of all the stars, planets, galaxies, and moons. And as an astronomer, I can tell you there really are stars out there. There really are planets and moons. It's not a mirage. We live on a planet. There's a star that supplies us with heat. That's all you need. It's very simple. You don't have to have a PhD to figure this out. If the universe expands too fast, none of the protons and neutrons will ever coalesce. How do we know how far away they are and how long it's been expanding? Well, because of a new paper published just in the June 1st issue of the Astrophysical Journal, I've got the paper here with me, we now have trigonometric parallax distances as far out as 3C279. What in the world does that mean? That's a quasar that's 6 billion light years away. But how do you know it's 6 billion? Okay, how do you know uh, there are variations taking place inside the quasar? that guarantee that the variations must be taking place over a certain number of miles diameter. Radio astronomers have developed a new technique where they can take telescopes all over the world and put together the equivalent of a telescope with a 6,000 mile diameter, which allows them to measure angles with extreme precision. And it's that technique that has enabled them to establish that this object is a minimum of 6 billion light years away and therefore the light must have taken six billion years to reach us. This is independent of the expansion measures of the universe. Ken? Well, I was born at night, but it wasn't last night, okay? Um, and I had students all the time that tried this same technique. It's called a snow job, I guess, to dazzle with big numbers. If you look at the, uh, I taught trigonometry, I know how it works. If, if you took a look at Earth's orbit around the sun, which is a huge circle, okay? Earth's orbit around the sun is only 16 light minutes across. It would, take this, it would take light 16 minutes to go across our orbit since we're eight light minutes away from the sun. Some people confuse. They think a light year is a time. A light year is a distance. We could have a Hoven minute. You know, how far can Hoven run in one minute? That's getting shorter each year, by the way. But uh, I could say it is 12 Hoven minutes to the store. Well, that's a distance. It's not a time. 
And a light year is not a t is, 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 it's a distance. It's a, just a, a shorter way to say a big number. Earth's orbit around the sun is 16 light minutes. One year has over half a million minutes in it, 525,948 minutes in a year. So if you're going to look at a star that is one light year away, and not, forget your 6,000-year base of your triangle, I'm talking 16 light minutes, 186 million miles, I'll give you that. If you had two surveyors up on the roof of this building and they were 16 inches apart, and they were looking at a dot eight and a quarter miles away, that would make a very skinny triangle. Real skinny triangle. That's what you get. That's the same angle you get when you have two people looking at a star from opposite sides of Earth's orbit, and the star is only one light year away, and none of them are that close. So I just, I just plain do not believe you. I've read your books. Uh, I, I, I learned an awful lot. You have some great stuff in here. But I think what we have here is a classic example of an exaggeration. They cannot tell a star not six billion light years no, away. You're wrong on this. Here are two papers that have been published. This sure. one gives a trig parallax distance to NGC 4258. And you can tell me. 23 and a half million. Well, can I talk trig? Explain this to me. You can say with trigonometry, you can measure six billion light years. Yes, you can. I, I just flat don't believe you. I'm sorry. Okay. It's not just the diameter of the Earth's orbit that's Plus, going for you. You can't tell where you were six months ago on opposite sides now, of Earth's hang orbit. Hang on, hang on. Okay. The reason why we're able to do this now and not five years ago is we now have telescopes with extremely high resolution okay. that can measure angles to better than a ten thousandth of an arc second. This is what gets you out so far. We're no longer limited to 500 light years. We can measure all the globular clusters in our, the Hipparchus satellite did that got us out to the globular clusters, but radio astronomy is getting us out to galaxies and quasars. Okay, I would have to be convinced. Now, I am not saying the stars are not billions of light years away. They probably are. I just think it is hocus pocus to say we can measure those distances because we cannot measure those distances. Yes, we can. Secondly, I'm sorry. Secondly, we do not know we do not know that the speed of light has always been a constant. Got to bring that up. We'll, okay. we'll talk about that. And thirdly, the God that I worship is able to make a full-grown man in a full-grown garden and full-grown universe. He doesn't need 17 billion years to get it put together so we can live here. He can make it right in six days, and he's capable of writing a book that the average person can understand. He's capable of doing all of that, but he's also capable of doing it in two nanoseconds. The question, oh, yeah, sure. the question would be is, what did he do? I'd like to hear some comments from you guys as to what you've seen so far. Um, and I'm going to try to do this where I can just. Just to test it? Oh my yeah, God. good. In terms of just debates and all, I thought the person that was uh, doing the younger debate was just trying to put words into the other person's mouth and not letting them finish what um, he's trying to say. And he's very interrupted. And also that some of the things that he's basing his stuff on uh, seems to be earlier studies, like books that he's written in the past, but uh, uh, Professor Ross or Dr. Ross seems to be bringing up new things that happened like two weeks ago and the technology that keeps on getting better that can better explain things as um, the other person just seems to be going off on the, the thing that my God can do this, my God can do that, as opposed to bringing the correlation of science and his theory. It's just that him saying, yeah, my God can do this. Of course, God can do anything he wants. But it's, it just doesn't make good for uh, debate. OK, good comment. Anybody else have a comment? You want to do it? Yeah, Justin. 
The, the young earth guy flat out just said, I don't believe you, but he never studied the science of it. Um, he just read his book and he just said, I don't believe it. That's a good point. Let's comment for a second on their qualifications. Uh, Dr. Ross, PhD in what? Anybody know? Yeah, astronomy, astrophysics, undergraduate in physics. Um, by the way, did postdoctoral work at Caltech, one of the leading uh, schools in the nation, um, and, and was doing it on quasars and, and, and analyzing supernovas and things like that. Uh, Dr. Hoven, what's his uh, PhD in? Education. And trigonometry. Well, apparently he, he taught trigonometry. I don't know that he actually <laughs> has a PhD in trigonometry. His PhD is in education. And this, for me, remember when we were building our framework last week, one of the things I asked you to analyze right away is the qualifications of the people who speak. I told you tonight the gloves come off since we have two very able bodies to represent their positions. I'm going to be unbiased tonight and kind of go after them. Um, most of the people that I've analyzed in the young earth community have a degree in something other than science. They're wannabes, in my opinion. They just want to join in on the conversation. They want to jump in, so they get a PhD in some limperous subject like education or something, and then they go in and start talking about astrophysics of the universe. I mean, it, it's kind of mind-boggling a little bit. But I will say there are some people, of course, who have uh, more concrete degrees in other areas like mathematics and sciences. But you've got to always look at what are they saying and what do they mean. When he says, I don't believe we can measure you know, he's telling an astrophysicist who probably does this every day, I don't believe you and I don't believe we can measure it. I, I mean, to me, if you were in my courtroom, I'd rip that guy to shreds. You know, we'd cross-examine that guy and bring him down to zero just on his qualifications to even comment. By the way, in a courtroom, a guy like Dr. Hoven couldn't even enter as an expert because he doesn't, he hasn't been qualified as an expert in the subject matter. So, interesting point. Yeah, there are people in the younger thing, they just, for some reason, they don't seem to speak out as much. Angela, you have a comment? I was just going to say <laughs> that he did have, he did his dissertation in uh, creation something, so, uh, creation and evolution, so he must have studied it right. at some extent. Um, the other thing I want to say, uh, actually ask a question on is about the Big Bang Theory, where he was uh, talking about, uh, Professor Hugh Ross was talking about how the earth is decaying and then the educator guy said something about how can it be decaying if it's expanding and i, I don't understand those what they're debating is something related to the second law of thermodynamics which says that matter tends to break down into energy okay there's always been a debate as to for the example the evolutionists always believe that if that law is just holds true by itself and things go from order to disorder and how is it that evolution goes from simple to complex? You know, that's always been a problem. The young earth people pick it up as well and say it's impossible to go from the bang, you know, spread it across the universe, which is technically in their mind going from order to disorder, the decaying theory, and yet you're building universes, stars, galaxies. So they think that even that law of science contradicts it. What Dr. Ross responded was, there is decay in the universe, but it occurs after the initial transcendent event. From, so in other words, the Big Bang occurs, spreads out, creates all the bodies. From that point, decay starts to occur in the universe. And now we see that everything is breaking down as opposed to building up. So they both agree that decay is going on. Dr. Hoven seems to think that that disproves the Big Bang, whereas Dr. Ross is explaining to him that no, the decay occurs after the Big Bang. That's why it's not a contradiction. What's 
Um, I just couldn't remember. Um, does the educator, does he believe in the Big Bang or does he not believe in it? His view is that the Big Bang theory is ridiculous. Oh, now, okay. The reason for it, by the way, is because it doesn't fit into his 6,000. I mean, he's, he, mm. uh, I'm not, I'll just restate what he says. He thinks that the Big Bang theory, because it would take billions of years to produce what it did, doesn't fit within a 6,000-year-old creation. It was just funny because he like shot himself in the foot when he kept saying, he was like, well, how do you know there's there are billions of years, like light years away, blah, blah, blah. And then he, he admitted, yeah, I believe there are billions of years, light years away, yeah. but... Remember last week we talked about this when we were analyzing claims of the young Earth uh, creationists. The reason they will finally admit that they are billions of years away is one, is because we can't get to them. I mean, and we know that the small periscopes, <laughs> The small telescopes that we have, you don't even need a radio telescope, but just the ones that we have are already measuring, you know, hundreds of thousands or whatever, or millions. It doesn't have to be billions. And finally, their view is that God created the light in transit. So he kind of placed billions of years of light year into the creation so that it was already getting here. I, I read this book that uh, Vicky gave me like uh, many light years away ago. Um, Actually, that's not that. That's distance, not time. Um, <laughs> and it, and the person that believes in the six thousand year thing um, goes through the the Bible as his uh, benchmark of how many years were gone by by the uh, lineage of people. But in, I think in the book of Exodus or one of the Pentateuch books, it says that there's a couple books missing because. Uh, Maybe it's in the book of Daniel, I forget which one, but it refers to another book which isn't in the canonization of the whole Bible. So there are, there are works that are missing from this book over here that I have. So would that uh, interfere with how many days, years, if there's a whole missing book? If you're a young earth creationist and you're counting the genealogy, their biggest mistake was originally that they counted just the Genesis genealogy and ignored the genealogies in other places in the Bible that inserted additional people. The Genesis genealogy, even though it says he's the father of the father of the father of, it actually turns out some of them are the grandfathers and great-grandfathers of them. If you're living eight or 900 years old at a pace back then, you're missing thousands of years just on your genealogy. So you'll see young earth creationists today say that the earth is actually not just 6,000 years old, but they'll say six to 10,000, leaving room for the people that they've missed along the way. And yeah, if there's other books that might include them, but really, we're so off on orders of magnitude, you could be missing an entire you know, volume in a library. You still wouldn't get to millions and billions of years if you're gonna count genealogy. Their assumption always begins with literal days. I mean, once you start with literal days, and you're gonna see this next segment as we go into it, once you get into the concept of literal days, now you must have a young earth or you won't. It's one or the other. Are they going to talk about genealogy on the, in the next section? They're not going to talk about it uh, in terms of, they're going to talk about that's how they get it, but they're not going to go into detail whether it's correct or incorrect. Okay. Um, and I thought last week that you said the view that um, light has not always been constant speed was completely rejected, and rather they, uh, the, Christ, or the young earth uh, would say that God put the light there and then the earth's there. Yeah, I, I'm going to tell you that I don't think that Dr. Hoven is up to speed with the rest of his colleagues, not okay. with the debate, but with the rest of his colleagues. Uh, he will cite in a few minutes a, a group called Answers in Genesis, which is really on the cutting edge of young earth creationist science. And it's by their own words that they claim that the speed of light is pretty much constant. Now, they still leave it open as a possibility that we don't know, but all of science, I mean, this is one of those things, you, you know, you, it's hard to go back in time and measure, but there are just so many problems with just saying that the speed of light was not constant because you're not talking about 
6, 10, 15,000, 20. I mean, you're talking about what must the multiple be to get from 6,000 to 17 billion? That's a huge error multiple. So that's why the speed of light thing, in the end, they go, you know, we could probably debate whether it's young or old based on the speed of light, but it's such orders of magnitude off that even the young earth creationists admit that that's not the way we're going to win this argument. And that's why they come to the conclusion that most likely, if you're going to believe it, you're just going to believe that light is in transit. Let me make a comment to be fair, by the way, to the young earth creationists. The old earth creationists have a little bit of this new cottage industry of commenting on creation when they don't have as many degrees either. You guys are like, not to knock his works, but Lee Strobel has written a book on the case for creation, right? Lee Strobel was a journalist, okay? So he probably takes somewhat of an old earth view, I think, but again, I don't know that he has the, the, the credentials to be commenting either. So there's a lot of people that weigh in on this subject because it's becoming very hotly debated. I think we just need to keep our eyes open on who's making the claims. Let's watch one more segment, go forward a little bit. This one's a little bit longer, I think. And you guys are on the right track, so let's come back and comment on it as soon as we're done. Now, I'd like to start off this uh, segment right here with the fact of just going down something we can all follow, Genesis chapter 1. Haven't heard anybody do this. And uh, we're going to see if the scientific evidence uh, matches this. I think this will be helpful to those of you at home. I'm going to read it. Uh, my first question is, what happened on day one? Scientifically, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. What in the world was that? And there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, it seems to me you got a couple things here. God created the universe. God created the earth. It was formless and empty. God creates light. What kind of light? Is he talking about the sun or something else? God separates light from darkness. Does scientific evidence agree with this order? What else do you guys see that's going on? Kent, you want to start us off? Well, sure. I think uh, anybody of average intelligence can read that and say, well, on the first day, God created the material. He created the heaven and the earth, and then he made light. And he chose six days to do this and then a day of rest to establish a seven-day week for us. It's just six normal days, just like we have today. There's no difference at all. And um, Exodus 20:11, the only thing God ever wrote with his own finger, he wrote on a rock for Moses, the Ten Commandments. Uh, everything else he had somebody write for him. He wrote with a rock with his own finger, and he doesn't stutter. He said, I made everything in six days. Okay. To me, that means he made everything in six days. Hugh, what happened there? What's, what's happening in day one? Okay, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's matter, energy, space, and time, as you can easily establish by going to seven other Bible passages, which means there's light in the beginning. But it's dark on the surface of the waters of planet Earth because the light of the heavens could not get through the Earth's atmosphere to the surface of the Earth. As it says in the first creation day, let there be light. He uses the verb hayah, distinct from the verb bara in Genesis 1.1. God creates the light in the beginning. It shows up on the surface of the earth on creation day one. So creation day one is not the creation of light. It's the appearance of light on the surface of the waters of planet earth. And now photosynthesis is possible on planet earth. So Genesis 1-2, in my opinion, is simply the statement of four initial conditions. The earth began dark, 
water over the whole face of the earth, unfit for life and empty of life, and now the Spirit of God begins to work and transform. All right, what about this word, uh, and there was evening and there was morning the first day? Sure. Uh, you're reading out of the King James, the no, original? No, reading this one off NIV, and, okay. uh, and, uh, but it is a distinct phrase that uh, is used there, uh, the first day. It should say, and there is evening and there is morning, right? Yes. Okay, two verbs, right? two subject complements, um, and one of our uh, Hebrew scholars, Paul Elbert, has written a piece on this very theme. And his point is that if it was going to be 24 hours, it would have to be uh, an evening and an evening, or a morning and a morning. The fact that it's evening and morning establishes that the text is not speaking of 24-hour days, but one of the other two literal definitions of the word day, there being three. It could be 12 hours, 24 hours, or a long time period. All three are literal. Paul Elbert's point is the structure of the evening and the morning establishes that it's referring to something other than a 24-hour day. Okay, let's, let's just stay right here for a little bit because both of you are Christians. Both of you believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, so it's not making a mistake here. Uh, Kent, do you agree we have three options? List them for me and I'll tell you if I agree. Well, <laughs> you've got the, how the word yam is used all through Scripture. You've got the day of the Lord, which has got to be more than a 24-hour period of time. Okay. Okay. You've got the fact of a 24-hour day, and then also it's used for just a 12-hour period of time, like the daytime. I think uh, if you gave this book to 5,000 people and said, read this, tell me what it says, all 5,000 would come back and say, this is saying he made it in six days. When you have to have a guru to tell you what it says, you now have a cult. That's what makes me very nervous. I think, if, let me read what James Barr says. He's a professor of Hebrew, or was, at Vanderbilt University, former Regis professor at the Hebrew at Oxford University. He said, probably as far as, so far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew of Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writers of Genesis 1 through 11 intended to convey to their readers the idea that the creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. Or to put it negatively, the apologetic arguments which suppose the days of creation to be long eras of time, the figures of years not to be chronological, and the flood to be merely a local Mesopotamian flood, are not taken seriously by such professors, as far as I know. That's simply not true. It wasn't true when James Barr stated it, and it's certainly not true today. Now, okay. I speak on seminary campuses all the time. Mm -hmm. And the majority uh, uphold the idea that the text, the plain reading of the text indeed implies long periods of time, not 24 hours. I mean, I'm testimony to that. I didn't meet Christians until I was 27. Mm -hmm. When I read the Bible for the first time, it was obvious to me it's speaking about six long time periods. There's no closure on the seventh day. You only got an evening and a morning for the first six days. You well, read Genesis chapter 2 and look at everything that happens on the sixth day. There are 10 creation accounts in the Bible. In order to develop a correct interpretation of creation, one must faithfully integrate all 10, not just focus on a couple of verses out of Genesis chapter well, let 1. Let me give you a little hint here. Well, Dr. Gleason Archer was my Hebrew professor. And uh, if we go to the next chapter, there's a tip-off, I think, in terms of uh, what it is. Uh, Genesis 2.4, referring back to the seven days, says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. 
referring back to those seven days, and then it says, in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. So you have one day referring to all those seven, so you have it as a period of time. Now, Gleason Archer writes about this. All biblical scholars admit that yom, day, may be used in a figurative or symbolic manner as well as in a literal sense. And he says this is very evident in Genesis 2-4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Henry Morris, of all folks, says the King James Version translates the word yom as a period of time 65 times. So the door is open, and it's very interesting that even... Uh, Moses himself is quoted in 2 Peter 3.10 this way. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Actually, it's, uh, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And he's quoting that from, I think it's uh, Psalm chapter 90, verse 4, which right. is a psalm of Moses. And that's how Moses, who wrote this passage, used it. I'm simply saying that there's exegetical grounds for opening the door for a stage or a period of time among the scholars. Yeah, Gleason Archer also made the point that on the sixth day you got Adam and Eve both created, Genesis chapter 1. When you go to Genesis 2, Adam hangs around a long time before Eve gets created. He's got to work the Garden of Eden. He's got to name all the animals. He goes through an operation. He recovers. And frankly, I think what's going on is God's dealing with them because men have a hard time integrating the physical creation, the emotional creation, the spiritual. He says, Eve doesn't need this college class, but Adam does. <laughs> I think it took him at least a semester to get through it. Well, the, the fact is, is uh, uh, for folks who don't know who Gleason Archer is, Gleason Archer has taught most of your Hebrew scholars. He graduated from Harvard with his PhD. I think he knows like 22 different languages. He used to take notes in Hittite when he was in, uh, in, in class. Uh, uh, I used to quote from the lexicon. He'd say, that's wrong. He would correct the lexicon. I never knew anybody that corrected the dictionary. He'd write a letter, and they would correct it. He got my attention. And so if he's open to the idea, I'm open to the idea. But the, the fact is, is regardless, let's go on here in terms of the order. What happened on day two? Well, I didn't get to respond to oh, that please, one. Please go ahead. Yeah, I would disagree very strongly with what uh, Dr. Ross has said. Yes. I think the days have to be six normal days because there are so many other references in Scripture. Uh, for instance, Exodus 20:11 in the Ten Commandments. God said, I want you to worship on the, or rest on the Sabbath because I made everything in six days. He wasn't telling them to work six million years and then finally take a break. And the only two references you referred to about so, uh, 2 Peter 3, 8 and Psalm uh, 90, verse 4, both of them say a day is like a thousand years. They don't say a million or a billion. Plus, I think if you just read the first chapter, you'll see God made the plants, the grass, and the trees on day three. He made the sun on day four. And the Bible says clearly He created the sun. He didn't just make the light visible. I don't know where Dr. Ross gets this idea that the smoke cleared and all of a sudden they could see that the sun was already there. But that's just simply not true. He created the Hold sun. Just You're let wrong. me finish now. The Hebrew word is very clear there. And um, the... Six days of, I mean, how long can the plants live without the sun? Plus, the insects are made on day five, and they pollinate the plants. Plus, animals breathe in oxygen and breathe off carbon dioxide. Plants do the opposite. The idea of these days being long periods of time is just ridiculous. Well, well let me just say this. So, the sun wasn't created on day one? The light was made. It doesn't say the sun was made. Okay, I just want to make sure you're, you're saying that. Do oh, you yeah. Think, you think the sun God was created is light. there? Definitely, and uh, the fourth day does not say that the sun was created. It uses the verb again, hayah, let there be the great lights. 
In the 16th verse where it says, so God made the sun, moon, and stars, it's in the Cal-perfect form, which simply states that the sun and stars were made at some unspecified time in the past. Moreover, not well, even I, in I your interpretation uh, can the plants survive 24 hours. They're not gonna make it even a nanosecond without the heat and light of the sun. So well, obviously I, there's something wrong with your interpretation. What I've seen from reading your work, and I probably got, I got an awful lot of letters from people who said, boy, I wish I could be there to debate Hugh Ross, you know. I got a lot of people would like, there's a, uh, many websites devoted to this topic, you know, of your, your appearance of knowing Hebrew when you don't know any Hebrew. I don't I've got either. a whole stable of Hebrew scholars that well, volunteers so I. for I can us read reasons to believe. Okay? Sure. And, I, and I, I can talk to people who read Hebrew also, but I don't want you to you know, mislead the audience into thinking you know Hebrew when you don't, and neither do I. All I can do, but I don't think God writes a book where we have to know Hebrew. The God that I worship is able to write a book and then preserve it and give it to us in a form that I can read and understand. And I'm telling you, nobody, if you, if, if you went to a mission field where there were no Christians and no concept of Christianity and just gave this book to them and said, what does it say? All of them would come back and say, it says six days, just like we have today. Kent, I've been on the mission field. That's not simply true. I mean, I've met all kinds of people who have drawn the conclusion these are long periods of time. Please name one. Okay. I mean, uh, there's some ladies that work with us in our office. Uh, raised in Arkansas, uh, read the Bible on their own, uh, mm -hmm. came to that conclusion, high school education. These are plain folk. Well, there you had the key right there. If they got a high school education in the public school, they would have been taught evolution, and then they would have read the Bible with I'm a preconceived idea. I'm talking 11 idea. years of age. I mean, it was before they hit the high school years. Well, and when I read your testimony also in your book about how you, you came to the Bible, you had already decided the Big Bang Theory is true. That was already a given in your mind. You'd already of course, decided the Bible he, teaches it. No, it doesn't. But you'd already <laughs> decided the Earth is billion, the universe is billions of years old, and now you come to the Bible and try to force that interpretation on God's word. That's the wrong way to come to it. Well, well, well let me let me bring up this thing about uh, Exodus chapter 20 again. Yes. And that uh, again, uh, Archer comments on this. He did this at the Council for Biblical Inerrancy when they were dry, uh, writing the draft, and they asked him to do the exegesis on this. Uh, Gleason Archer used to teach at Trinity Divinity School. Uh, Bruce Walke used to teach, was chairman of Old Testament at Dallas. These guys wrote a workbook on the Old Testament together, and this is uh, part of their commentary. In terms of Exodus 20, uh, 8 through 11, in terms of what the Sabbath is mentioning and referring back to, he says, by no means does this demonstrate that 24-hour intervals were involved in the first six days any more than the eight-day celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles proves that the wilderness wanderings under Moses occupied only days. Remember, Israel wandered in the uh, wilderness for 40 years. So it was a symbolic commemoration of that time is what they're saying. And I just point this out that how do we, the, the very question you guys are grappling here for our people that are at home, how are they supposed to approach this? You've got the verse in Genesis chapter 2 where it does seem to say that a day refers to the whole spectrum of whatever time period those six days, seven days occurred uh, in the first chapter. You have the day of the Lord, which everybody seems to agree can go on into eternity. You've got other suggestions of periods of time. If it opens the door, there have been people that I have known that have just approached it and said that's a possibility. They haven't known the science, but it's a possibility. But I'm saying, if it is a possibility, are evangelicals wrong in exploring that possibility? 
Because oh, you do have biblical support in other places for it. I think you should explore all possibilities. I'm an, ed I'm an educator. I think when you teach, a, a, a real true education shows the kids all the options. I think we should study that option that the days might be long periods of time. I would like you to show me any place in Scripture where it says a day is not a 24-hour day if it also uses the, the evening and the morning phrase with it, and the first day, the second day, the third day. I mean, the Bible just couldn't be more clear. And then it's reinforced in Exodus chapter 20 and in Exodus chapter 31 about God did it all in six days. Well, let's and, pick that theme up. I mean, Exodus sure. 20. Uh, that whole idea of the fourth commandment is repeated five times in the Levitical law. Only two of the five times does it give you the divine analogy. Uh, four and six days. And we also note in both cases the prepositions not in the original. It simply says four six well, days. Here you're not going off in your imagined days. Hebrew again. Now let's That's stick with not imagined like, Hebrew. Well, you, you don't speak Hebrew, and neither do I. Okay. No, I've checked it out. I've checked it out with Hebrew scholars. They okay. assure me that the preposition's not there. I've okay. read have the you, actual text. It's not in the original. And have you read the long critique of what you just said on Answers in Genesis website about this very topic you're talking about? Sure have. And what's your response? My response is it doesn't withstand the scrutiny of Hebrew scholarship. He also ignores the problem of Leviticus, uh, chapter 25. There you got the case of God setting up a work period and a rest period for the agricultural land. It is to be worked six years and rested on the seventh year. Correct. So I go along with Gleason Archer. What you got in Exodus 20 is an analogy, not an exact equation. Well, there I disagree. All right, we're going to take a, a break, and uh, when we come back, we're going on to uh, the second day to find out. We're going down toward Adam and Eve, when they were created, when the animals were created, and what was going on. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's have, anybody want to make a comment on what we've just seen so far? I don't mean to talk a lot, but... <laughs> What's, what's up with the sun? I mean, he, he said something about the sun being created on the fourth day. I'm not... Young, young earth creationists believe that the days must be literal because if you're going to have plant life and animal life, those things depend on photosynthesis. So you can't have long periods of time with plants existing on one day you know, a million years go by and then the sun is created on the fourth day or something like that because the plants need the sun. Or, for example, you can't have plant life going on for millions of years on a quote-unquote long period of time day and then having animals created because animals and plants use each other to create the oxygen and the carbon dioxide and all that stuff. What Dr. Ross is pointing out is it doesn't say that those things are created on those days. He's saying the sun has already existed for millions of years before we even get to the days of creation that he keeps, they keep arguing over what the Hebrew says, but when he's saying the Hebrew, when it says, let there be, is God's way of saying that these things have already existed for time, but now they're going to appear as opposed to be created. Okay? He uses the word bara in Hebrew for created from an instantaneous creation versus there's the other word that he used okay, that's more of an appearance of something that has been created at a previous time. So that's how the old earth creationists are able to explain how plants could live for millions of years and then later on having animals or like, you know, plants living and, and they're saying, well, where's the sun? Like, they need the sun. It's like, the sun's already been there. Okay. And that's where they're debating over this. Any other comments about what you've seen? I want to ask some questions too, but comments? Jewish people read like Jewish things. Um, 
what did they believe? Like, what does the Jewish community believe in terms of creationism? Because that's, that's like, their, their book also includes that, I think. Asking Speaking Hebrew truth. scholars has been a real, what's the word I'm looking for? Let me put it this way. It's not been helpful to the arguments for a couple of reasons. You have a whole group of Hebrew scholars that are analyzing it from just a purely historical standpoint and have no belief in God to begin with. So they don't care one way or another about the debate from that perspective. Then you have Hebrew scholars that are evenly divided. There are some, in fairness, who side with the young earth creationists and say that it's just an unfair interpretation of, of, of the scriptures, that you evangelicals now are trying to change what it, what it says. But then you have other Hebrew scholars who are squarely on the side that it is not a literal day, or they'll at least say it does not have to be a literal day. Now, you heard him cite Gleason Archer, and interesting to me, I'll just comment on it, that, that this guy just comes, I mean, this guy comes very highly. You could tell that the moderator himself brings him up and brings him into the debate. Uh, if I were commenting on the debate, I'd say like a debate error. That should have been Hugh Ross who brings him up. The guy is a phenomenal source. He's very credible. He supports the old earth creationists in a lot of ways. You know, Dr. Ross probably should have identified him first, but in either event, I think it gives credibility that the moderator identifies him, gives him this great credibility, and then says to Dr. Hoven over and over, like, you're wrong, Gleason Archer disagrees with you. Again, what's Dr. Hoven's qualifications? Dr. Ross's qualifications? None, other than they both rely on the scholarship of other people. But it seems that an independent person that is highly regarded seems to support the idea that it is not literal days, or I should state it more precisely, it does not mean that they are literal days. The door is open, as the moderator keeps saying. There's nothing conclusive. I'll pass it back. I, know, I noticed the young earth guy, his main argument keeps going, he keeps going back to the simple people must be able to understand this, but the old earth, uh, Hugh Ross, is not trying to say to understand God, we need to understand how, cre how creation happened. He's just um, exploring the complexity of creation and there's a lot of complexity in science in the rest of the Bible too and I think that's a bad argument on the young earth. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That is an excellent point um, and I'm going to comment on it in just a second. Pass the mic back to Sarah for a second. You don't know? Let me, let me comment on this because I, th I want to ask you your opinion. Dr. Hoven keeps saying that this can't be true because if it were you'd need a guru to interpret the Bible and therefore you're a cult. Okay, now that's an, that's an ad hominem attack. He's just going after him. But do you need a guru to interpret the Bible in this case? Just something to think about for a second. And the other thing is, how many times does Dr. Hovind say, the God I worship, <laughs> like everyone's, I mean, if you count it, it's just like the God I worship. So somehow it goes back to my comments from last week. There is a person who's already made up his mind on who God is. And he is sticking to it no matter what. The God I worship, he has a picture of him. That picture is not changing. Okay, and if it's inconsistent with the picture he has of God, automatically rejected. But let's go into that for a second. First, what if the creation account is difficult to understand? Do you think God would write a creation account that's difficult to understand for the Hebrew people as they're wandering through the desert as Moses is trying to tell them how the world started? Is that a problem for anybody? I mean, can God write something? Is it, is it easy to understand? Does Dr. Oven have a point that you could take this book to anybody in the world, open it up, and they'll probably come back and tell you, sounds like six days? What, I mean, that sounds like a pretty compelling point. Why is God kind of obscuring the language a little bit if the old earth creationists are right? Doesn't that kind of count against them a little bit? 
Well, what we're really trying to tackle with is, does Dr. Hoven have a point when he says, if you hand this over to somebody, there's a plain meaning in this. Why should we be looking beyond the plain meaning of the words? Like, why would God be even telling somebody to write something? Why didn't you just tell Moses, by the way, in the first eon of time? Like, why did he say days? And does Dr. Hoven have a point that it's difficult to understand? Well, I, I, was, well, I was thinking about uh, when, when he said that in your question was that he kept saying, you know, if you give this to 5,000, you know, or everyday people or simple people or whatever, that they'll all come back and say the same thing. But, you know, if you give it to 5,000, say, American people who are reading, uh, you know, the NIVs, for instance, you know, which is more or less a, kind of like an American or English translation, uh, of course it'll say, you know, the same thing. But what you would really, what he's overlooking or doesn't know or it seems like he doesn't get it or whatever, is that uh, you would have to look at what the original text said to the original people. So if you really want to give it to the 5,000 people, you would have to give 5,000 people the original uh, text to get the original meaning, you know, the original intent of the author uh, to the people, and that way you can get, um, you know, their their interpretations or whatever. Yeah, Dr. Hoven says, and I want you to evaluate this claim, the God I believe in, okay, he kind of throws out one of those statements, you don't have to know the Hebrew, okay, to believe in the God he believes in. Is that valid, do you think? What do you think about that? Do you think that it's okay not to know the the language the Bible was written in? Hannah? No. <laughs> I think it's absolutely ludicrous to base your whole belief system on the English translation and say that that's, you know, what is written based on, you know, a council of people that they are divinely inspired. And, you know, I mean, it's just... But you know these people try hard to translate correctly, right? Right. And there's at least five or six different translations. So you could put them all together. And a lot of them still seem to say day. Like none of them have ever gone out and ventured out and translated it into a long period of time. But I, I think just his comment that you don't need to know Hebrew to be able to read this Bible is probably a different argument altogether. And I think Justin was kind of hitting on it a little bit. I guess the way that I look at it, God wants to be known. He wants to be fully known. He wants to know you. I don't think that it means that you have to know everything in the Bible to know God. I, for example, you certainly don't have to have your creation theology correct to go to heaven. Okay? Maybe God has made the good news very easy to understand. Maybe God has made his law very easy to understand. Maybe God has made grace, salvation, a lot of things very easy to understand. But as you saw in our series about heaven, it took a lot of digging into verses and what they really mean to start to understand what he was really saying. So maybe when he said something to the Hebrews back in the desert all the way so many years ago and they wrote it down a certain way, you know, maybe he just wasn't really, they weren't really ready to have a 21st century discussion of supernovas. All right? Maybe all he needed them to know at the time was, I created the earth. Don't worry about how long it took or what's in it right now. It's just enough that you know that I did it. Later on, they might discover how amazing I am once they build that telescope and Galileo gets excommunicated for it in 1633. You asked, uh, is God trying to be obscure? Well, I was just thinking about Revelation, and it's not like we understand everything about Revelation. Good point. You know? Good point. And I think the main message in in the beginning and, and the end, Revelation and Genesis, is God created the, the world, and then and God will be with us throughout um, throughout time, all time, through everything. Okay. And we don't have to understand all the science, and even like in Revelation, it's 
really obscure. Yeah, and I, by the way, let me make that disclaimer while we're at this point in the conversation. You do not need to understand the science and the Bible to be saved. Let's be clear. The reason that we go into it deeply into this group is not for salvation. Maybe not yours, but it might be the salvation of somebody else because they won't even consider Christianity until you give them an answer that sounds decent. So the reason we're studying science so in depth is not because it's going to lead us to salvation. It's because hopefully in a conversation with somebody who very much doubts the Bible's truth, you might be equipped after you hear these topics at least be able to respond. Maybe that'll bring them closer to salvation. But yes, I certainly don't think that's a requirement. Eric? Uh, I, I read somewhere that uh, the, this, the Hebrew that was spoken during the time of Moses is totally different from the Hebrew that's spoken now. Is that kind of true? And that there's an evolution of the language because it was, a very, it was primitive at the time that they were wandering. So like interpretation of current Hebrew scholars would have to like They'd have to know the, cor the, you know, the difference between current and... Long. The Hebrew language back then was very limited, and even in terms of words. I've, I've heard that it had as little as 3,000 words, so that many words were used to mean multiple things. But all interpretation, by the way, of existing languages in the Bible requires context. So the fact that we're starting to build that context, that's why the, the old earth arguments ring true in my ear when I hear them, when they say that if there's a incongruence between science and our interpretation, it might be that our interpretation needs to be considering something else uh, because they got to put it in the right context. Anyone else have a comment? We are going to continue the video next week and probably the week after. I encourage you to come because there are other things on here that are beyond just the days of creation issue that they're going to get into. We are going to start talking about other parts of it I think that are important uh, you'll see that there's debates over when does death enter into the mankind and the animal kingdom. They might even start talking about the flood and all sorts of things. Um, you know, a lot of fun stuff. You can see there's a little bit of heat to the debate, though, between them. You know, uh, these guys, it's, it's hard. But I'd like to make an observation about how their demeanor is as debaters. I think you could see that, you know, no, no, no hiding that I like Dr. Ross. Um, he actually behaves pretty much like a gentleman throughout the debate. And he never takes the ad hominem attack. I mean, this is the kind of guy who could turn to the other guy and go, look here, dummy. You know, I mean, you don't even understand what a telescope, you couldn't even build a telescope, you don't even look through one. I mean, and yet he, he always refrains from that and he answers the question that's being asked and he answers it with facts and data. Whereas the other person seems to answer his, the arguments and the, with more arguments. And I think that right there, is telling sometimes that they just don't withstand the scrutiny. I hope they bring somebody else in. You're right. Maybe they brought in the dunce and they should have brought in somebody who's got a little bit more to them. But I'll tell you that all of them have at their fingertips all of the scholarship. So, you know, they could be citing other people and they, and they will as you'll, as you'll see the debate goes on. Okay. Any last comments, questions? By the way, you guys know, uh, just as a plug for reasons to believe, they're literally like four blocks down the road right here. Uh, they do joint sessions with New Song and APU. They've, Dr. Ross has actually been here in this sanctuary preaching on these topics, um, and they do it every once in a while. They'll have a series. Um, if you ever get the chance to actually see him in person, I mean, the guy is, there's no doubt. The, the first time anybody ever told me about Dr. Ross, they described him as the biggest brain Christianity has going for it, and I thought like, well, that couldn't be very big, <laughs> you know, but I guess I'll go see it anyways. And I walked into the room and they were like, you know, it was a packed hall at Bel Air Press and they had him speaking. And I just remember just, 
I, I couldn't believe, I mean, forget that I didn't understand half the things he said, but by the time I was done, I literally felt like I could walk out of there and that someday before I died, I believed that Hugh Ross was going to prove Christianity to the world in a geometric proof somehow. He was so smart. And I went out and bought every book he had. And I just encourage you guys, if you want, he's got more stuff. We're going to be bringing in some resources. If you want to know more, you want to read, they've got books on almost everything you can think of that go into like little areas like, do you believe the flood is big or earth or, you know, like those kind of things. Do you believe you want a book just on the six literal days? They have a book just on like different things. They have a book on scientists who've become Christians after they've investigated science. They have just great stuff. So let's pray, do a little bit of worship tonight. Get away from all the science and just worship God tonight. That'd be kind of good. You know what Walt Whitman said? Just to show you this great quote I love from him. He was always the guy. He had wrote a poem called, When I Heard the Learned Astronomer, with all his maps and charts and measurements, I just ran outside and gazed at the stars in awe. And it's like one of those, it's a paraphrase of Walt Whitman where he just said like, you know what? Sometimes we analyze things so much and so complex that sometimes we just need to calm down for a moment and just forget about it and just stand outside and look at the stars with our naked eye and just wonder at God. And maybe that's what we'll do tonight in worship is we'll put down all these charts and measurements and arguments and debates and for a moment just remember that no matter whether he did it in six days or six billion years, he's still the creator. He still made it all. He still did everything. And we shouldn't lose sight of the majesty of God in the midst of beating up each other within the church. Let's pray. Lord God, you are deserving of all praise and glory. You are the supreme God of the universe. And Lord, you may be right now with the whole host of people in heaven laughing at the meager efforts that we make to try to understand you and the creation you make. You may even be looking at someone like Dr. Ross thinking he's so many miles away from understanding the true nature of how you did it. But Lord, we can't help but be curious. You created us that way. And Lord, it's not just us as Christians, but it's this whole world they all want to know. They all look to the stars and we all wonder and we all want answers for where we came from and how it all started. And Lord, I just pray that Tonight, if nothing else, maybe we've learned that Christians do have answers. While we might debate them amongst ourselves, while we might use things and arguments that may not make always sense, Lord, at least we can see that intelligent men and women can step forward and actually answer the questions. And Lord, that's really the ultimate lesson that we should be learning, is to answer the questions. Lord, forgive me if I'm wrong, if my biases are wrong or my conclusions are in error. I'm just trying to understand you too. But again, Lord, the example here that I hope that everyone follows really in these two men that we saw tonight is just that they believe so passionately that the Bible is not just a dead book of words. It's not a silly book that people can make fun of, but it really is the literal word of God. It does stand up to every scientific proof and it can explain things that scientists this day still can't explain. So let your word be glorified, Lord. Let us take it seriously and study it let us use this debate for the purposes it was intended to strengthen and equip us so that we can go out and find other people, Lord, who need to know more about you, who love you, and Lord, who may join us in heaven in eternity because they found your saving grace. Lord, tonight we're going to worship you. Let's just set aside all our, 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 our thoughts and all our prideful ideas. Let's just worship you as the God of the universe for the next few moments and remember who you are. Thank you, Lord, for everything you've done. In your precious name. Amen.